is Sarah Jamshidi. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. Today, we are talking about the color of God. Personally, I believe that God has billions of billions of colors. I think God has such colors that we have yet to discover them. However, for the purpose of our conversation today, we are talking about Sibgatullah, which apparently means the color of God in Urdu, spoken in Pakistan. Sibgatullah was the nephew of our guest today, Aisha Chaudhry. Aisha Chaudhry is Canada Research Chair and Professor of Gender and Islamic Studies at the University of British Columbia, not too far away from, from Seattle. In 2018, Aisha was named a member of Royal Society in Canada. She is the author of Domestic Violence and the Islamic Tradition. So I'm bringing Aisha to our screen. Hello, Aisha. Hi. Aisha, so just for a starter, and I wanted to open our conversation with sort of a humor. And that humor is, as I was reading the book, I, I learned that you, you made a lot of confession. And one of those was that you are a talkative kid. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me the <this> story. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there was, um, you know, I grew up in a family. I was one of six children. I was number three of six children. And, um, you know, you had to like sort of really speak up if you wanted to be heard. Um, and so I, I was a pretty talkative kid. And I think a lot of the adults around me uh, worried about me talking too much. And they were concerned about what would like what, how this would uh, like what would I would say. They were, they were concerned about what would happen to me when I grew up if I kept speaking too much. And one of the things that I meditate upon in that story, in that chapter in the book, uh, Early Talker, is about the ways that you know we are socialized as as girls as people of color to not talk as much and it, you know um, it was you know my parents were worried about me talking too much but then also at school people were worried about me talking too much and I sort of carry on that conversation examining how I feel about speaking uh, in various contexts into my professional life so as I grow older through university through school through university through uh, my professional career. What are the ways that people react to, how, what, how do people react to women speaking their opinion and especially women of color speaking their opinion? Absolutely. Before we going too far uh, throughout the years of experiences, in early ages, there is a story about you and uh, an auntie who really wanted to keep violence and it created a trauma. Can you tell me this story? Well, I feel like, um, so that story is an interesting, so it's a story in which I'm thinking about how does, how does social policing happen? What are the ways in which, you know, we teach children how to be in the world? And, you know, when I was growing up, we lived in this little, um, we lived in a building surrounded by a lot of other South Asian, South Asians. And there was a woman there, that, her name's Zahida Andi, and that's how I remember her, when she would come to visit my mother. I would tell my mother, oh, you know, why don't you put some chai on and go prepare something for the guests and I'll, I'll talk to her and I'll read her Quran and I'll serenade her and, you know, keep her busy with stories because I wanted to be the center of attention. Um, I was a little girl at this time. I think in the story, uh, in the chapter, I say that I was around five. And, and I usually use that age as, actually as a figurative, as a metaphorical age in the book where I'm like, mm, probably this happened around five, as in like, I don't know how old I was. I was pretty young when this happened. This was before I started school. 
And one afternoon, um, this auntie, she was quite disturbed by me talking so much and was felt that my mother wasn't disciplining me enough. And so she just kind of took it upon herself to teach me about talking too much. And she um, convinced my mother to let me come and spend an afternoon with her so that she could teach me a lesson. And so she had me over to her house and um, told me that I talked too much and then said that because I talked too much, I was going to be eaten by a lobster. And she had this like lobster on a plaque, like a, her, her husband had bought it for her from an airport or something in, a, in her closet. And she, she like put me in the closet and closed the door, <laughs> closed the door. And so I don't really know what happened except that I was terrified. I was screaming. I was crying. Eventually I remember eating ice cream. She like gave me ice cream and I was pretty quiet. And uh, when my mother called to check in to see how the afternoon was going, she heard my voice and knew something was wrong. And so she, um, immediately came to get me, but I wouldn't confess to her what had happened because this woman had like made, told me that if I told my mother, then this monster was going to eat me for sure. And so she, um, so I, you know, I, I went home, I didn't tell my parents, but then in the middle of the night, I woke up with a fever and I was screaming about it, eating me. And then, you know, my parents called this woman and she confessed to what she had done. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a rather dramatic story, but it's a story that, you know, um, I share because I also, in my classes, when I teach my classes, I ask my students to pay attention to the ways in which we are taught in very subtle, um, sometimes very dramatic ways, but sometimes in far more subtle ways to behave appropriately uh, for our gender, for our race, for our class, for our you know religion, like all the ways in which we are taught this. And so that story is an entry point to examining that question. Yes, examining that question. And that is a excellent point to just maneuver over to, to ask about your mom. Okay, so I have a confession. <laughs> Throughout the book, I mean, I had a really hard time, although you made peace with your mom and I don't see any, what's the word, a victim, victim, um, playing victim of any, any parts. But I could not, especially for the first half of the book, I could not like your mom because she was so strict and she was, she was so extreme. Tell me about your mom. What happened? Well, I think um, one of the ways that I, you know, I, one of the things that I love uh, in terms of the feedback that I've received from people about the book is that they actually come away loving my mother um, and they love her because, but she's not like, uh, she's, they love her and they admire and respect her, but they understand that she's complicated. And so I feel like, you know, I really wanted to have a complex, compassionate portrayal of this immigrant mother, a kind of immigrant mother we actually don't hear very much about often because there's so much pressure to like, you know, sort of uh, silence our complexities and not have complicated relationships. You know, the mother-daughter relationship is a very complicated relationship in every cultural context. And um, I really wanted to explore that relationship like that I had with my mother in the context of immigration because my mother had immigrated to this country. And I think, you know, my mother was quite, she was quite a disciplinarian, but I think a lot of her, a lot of her impulse for being a disciplinarian came from fear. Like she was afraid of, you know, how she was going to fit in this country that she had come to that was so unwelcoming to her and how her children would find a place in that world. And so she really, she really was trying to find a place in the world, um, her place in the world. And Canada was not where she imagined actually ending up. And I really took that, take that seriously in the book. You know, usually I think um, conversations about immigration are about like, you know, from especially from a place like Pakistan to a place like Canada are 
narratives of like liberation and like, you know, emancipation and freedom. But that's actually not how a lot of people who immigrate from, you know, uh, different countries to Canada experience their, their time here. And I really wanted to examine what um, what it felt like to be a child of a person whose dream was not to actually grow up and be in Canada, who had basically survived, like who was living in the wreckages of colonialism, who had survived, you know, who, had, who was from a family that had survived partition um, in India, Pakistan, had come here um, for economic reasons, not because this was her dream, and was trying to raise a family that she could, and children that she could actually relate to as they grew older. I really like think about like, what are the violences that we commit in the name of love, in the name of trying to belong, you know, and, but also like, what are the heartbreaks of trying to belong to a place you're never going to be from? Absolutely. Very, some of the very important, so first of all, I could project <laughs> of, of, you know, by reading the book. I mean, I, I, I was thinking, oh my God, what she's explaining here is actually happened to me or i know someone that this this kind of experience that ha happens to her or i so it was it was full of experiences and examples that i could absolutely relate speaking of pakistan and the us how would you compare what are the commonalities or probably the big differences between what you've seen in U.S. and what you've seen in Pakistan in terms of treating women? Well, in this book, I think I'm trying to examine um, like overlapping patriarchies, right? So like when my parents, you know, they immigrated to Canada, actually. And uh, when my mother came to Canada, the the programs that were available for like to men for like learning English, for example, were not available to immigrant women who, who were with their husbands because it was assumed that that would be redundant by the Canadian state. So that was a very patriarchal rule that basically prevented my mother from being able to enroll in classes when she first came that could have changed the trajectory of her life and of all of our lives. Right. So I think like one of the things I, I want, I, one of the arguments I'm making in the book, and I think you, you said this briefly earlier and I want to touch on it now is, you know, the book is uh, in the book. I'm basically making, you know, it's a, for me, this is an a book of embodied theory. I'm making arguments through like stories, through experiences that I've had. So I'm basically like, practicing the theory of not cutting off an, uh, a thinker from their thinking. So I'm saying, here's what I believe. Here's how I think this works. Um, but this is why I think it that, that this is the way it works uh, based on these experiences that I've had. So none of the stories in the book ever are there for no reason. They're always making an argument. And so one of the, the ideas that I'm exploring in the book throughout the various chapters is you know, patriarchy is very complicated. It's complex. It's layered. It's not flat or one dimensional. Usually, what we think about patriarchy is like a caricature of it. But at the same time, you know, it was interesting for me to think about like, what does, what, what was it like my mother, for my mother to go to school in Pakistan versus what is it like for me to go to school in Canada as a Muslim wearing hijab? Like, what are the experiences that I had um, in, in school? And, you know, among the experiences that I had that shaped my experiences were things like, you know, racism, Islamophobia, but also, also patriarchy that is sort of like pervasive. We live in a country where women are worth less than men. Their labor is worth less than men, literally. Like we make, you know, the, the equal payday every year falls somewhere in April, uh, which it, at the end of April, which is that if a woman and a man worked at the same job for the same amount of time, if we're not thinking for a second about, if we sort of like generalize for race and class, which you cannot do. 
So I just like putting that caveat there, um, an average, like a woman would have to work up until April, the end of April of the following year in order to make as much as the man did the year before. So I'm thinking about like, you know, what are the ways, like those, that's a quantifiable way of thinking about patriarchy. Can you say it again? So when a woman, uh, can you just elaborate on that so woman at the end of the April? Day usually falls somewhere in April. And it basically mm -hmm. says, okay, if a man and a woman started working in January of one year, how much longer would a woman have to make, uh, would have to work to make the same amount as he did by December of the same year? So she ends up working into the next year, usually until the end of April, right? So that's like a quantifiable way to think about patriarchy. But the other thing that I was really interested about in the book was to explore like the more, the more intimate, more like the, the less, like the, the things that you actually can't measure, like the heartbreaks of it, the intimacies of it, the intricacies of patriarchy, like how does it affect you know, how you live, uh, the choices that you make, uh, what kind of education is made possible for you. Um, and so, yeah. Yes, yes. Very important point that you are making. So the similarities between perhaps Pakistani society and the U.S. society is the patriarchy that women has to deal with in various spheres and various sectors. Why is it being a woman so difficult especially in Afghanistan or in Pakistan or in Iran, in your opinion? Um, that's a great question that I don't know that I have the answer to, because I think that there are probably there isn't one answer. There's many different reasons. Right. So I think one um, like what one wrong answer is that the reason is Islam. And, and I say that that's the wrong answer because there isn't one kind of Islam. That's the thing that I really explore in this book as well, is that, you know, there isn't one kind of Islam. There are multiple Islams. There are multiple feminisms or multiple patriarchies. There's as many of these ideas. There's many democracies. There's as many of these ideas as there are people that practice them. And, you know, Islam never speaks of it for itself. Muslims speak for Islam. You know, one of the things that I think the conversations that are happening within and have happened for a long time within Islam are it, because Islam is contested like anything else is, you know, what is the appropriate like what is the relationship that Islam has to egalitarianism or to patriarchy and um, post-colonialism, especially, you know, but even before there has always been a patriarchal version of Islam. And I think the work, the important work that Muslim feminists have done, feminists like Amina Wadud and Ziba Mir Husseini um, and Asma Barlas, is that they have shown that actually there are egalitarian forms of Islam as well that have always coexisted. And that it's not necessarily true that a patriarchal form of Islam is, is a more authentic kind of Islam. One of the things that I think about in the book is actually going beyond the issue of like gender and thinking about, instead of thinking about, you know, patriarchy versus egalitarianism, is I really explore the idea of Puritanism. So the idea of like when a religion, when like the, when a worship, a formal or informal worship of a kind of purity, whether that purity is found in maleness, in whiteness, in wealth, in class, uh, in humans versus non-humans, when, when people sort of subscribe to an idea of one creature, one kind of person, one kind of being, being better and more important than others, then what are the sacrifices that become very easy to make in order to maintain that hierarchy? Um, and so, you know, in the last chapter of the book, for example, Please Water Me, I think about how Puritan, like a Puritan religion, how destructive it is, especially a Puritan kind of Islam. 
And I think that, you know... Um, when we say Puritan, do we say like pure Islam? Like pure well, no, I mean, by Puritan, I mean like uh, a kind of Islam that worships an idea of purity above and over the human being. So that sacrifices our humanity for the sake of an idea. And so it's like not an Islam that I'm, it's an Islam that I'm being very, being very critical about. And I think uh, patriarchal Islam... Why you are very critical about? Well, I'm critical about it because it sacrifices the human being for the sake of an idea of purity that is actually not rooted in our humanity. So for example, um, I, I see patriarchal Islam as a kind of Puritan Islam. It's an Islam that says that men are more pure than women, that women are more polluted, that in their essence, they're less intelligent, that they're less worthy of salvation, which I don't believe in. And I think that that this idea is not rooted actually in Islam. So I think part of this is like part of the conversation about it. When we're thinking about religion, it's so important to never isolate religion into a vacuum away from a social, political, cultural context. And I think that's like something that I'm really thinking about when we think about the horrifying, heartbreaking images that we're getting out of uh, Afghanistan right now is that it's very easy to make this about the Taliban. But, you know, there is an imperial force that was there for 20 years that arrived with carpet bombs and is now leaving in this really destructive way as well. And in the meantime, in the 20 years that they've been there, I mean, what have they done for the people of Afghanistan in their in their occupation? And so I feel like thinking about it in that context helps us see how religion is used regularly by political actors all over the world, not just by Muslims. I mean, let's think of the Christian right in, in America. So religion is used by political actors in order to justify their positions. And it's actually less important that that position is a religious position. But what's more, <laughs> but what's more important is that, it, it, that the religious position that they're espousing allies with their political ideas yeah allies with their political ideas but here is the catch so why do we have so much negative negative stories about women in the media about Muslim women in the media especially from those countries what is the reason you think i mean if we're thinking about the you, you mean the western media why do western we media well i think because of racism <laughs> Mm -hmm. like there's certain stories, uh, there's certain narratives that we are allowed to tell about Muslim women. Um, and if we break those narratives, somehow, our which, which is basically our experience, our lived experience does not follow those narratives. These simplistic, reductive narratives. Because human beings, as I say in the book, are leaky, we're complicated, we don't fit into a box, we don't fit into a neat storyline. So when our stories don't fit into these simple narratives, which they necessarily don't, then um, our stories become either uninteresting or incoherent. They don't have a space to, for it to be told because there's so, complexity and nuance in our yes. own experiences. Yes, yeah, so it's up to Muslim women to change mm -hmm. the narrative and to just change this reduction point of view of what is portrayed as a Muslim woman. Would you think that in, in your feminism studies, would you think that non-Muslim or perhaps white feminism can help to improve the negative narrative towards more positive? Well, in the book, I talk about white feminism as a kind of feminism that assumes the white woman as normative, uh, as a normative female. So I don't think that that kind of feminism, white feminism, uh, like as a as, like the way that I, patriarchal Islam assumes the male, Muslim male to be the normative subject, white feminism assumes a white woman to be the normative subject. And I don't, I think that those are inherently puritanical ways of thinking and they're uh, really destructive and toxic. 
So I don't think that within white feminism, there like you have to sort of like, just like there's different kinds of Islam, there's different kinds of feminisms. And I think that in more egalitarian feminisms that are actually, you know, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, that are actually doing uh, intersectional kind of work, that's actually the space intellectually and socially and culturally where we can find much more complicated narratives about different people. So I want to go back to the book. The book mm -hmm. opens with a drastic event of losing your nephew. And then is this the time you decided that you would like to write this book? Um, well, I know I, the, you know, the, my nephew passed away about, I think that now it's about 17 years ago. Um, 17. 17 years ago. And it was a very, um, you know, it was a very traumatic experience for me, for my family. And it was, it was devastating. And I think one of the things that that event that his passing did was really bring attention to the fact that, you know, I had been living my life up until that point, I was in my early 20s at that time, that I had been living my life assuming that I believed a number of things about what is the meaning of life, what happens when we die. And then suddenly I didn't know if I believed in those things the same way anymore. And so it basically put me in a crisis of faith that led me on a journey to re-examine and think about a lot of the ideas that I had taken for granted. And so it was like a decades long journey. And then um, I actually never, I never intended to write this book, to be honest. I got a fellowship in 2015-16 at Harvard at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. And um, they basically like bought me out from my teaching at UBC, so at the University of British Columbia. So I was basically at Harvard for a year in residence with 50 fellows. And um, I was meant to be working on actually a different project. And um, one day the sun was out. It was, it was the second week that I was there, still uh, September. And I just didn't want to be in, in my office in front of a computer screen. So I took my, a pen and a paper, a notebook. And I went outside onto the patio to sit in the sun outside of Byerly Hall. And I thought, oh, I'll just take some notes on this essay, on this essay that I'm trying to write. And then um, I ended up writing the first chapter, what became the first chapter of my book, which is called Anguish. And I remember just being seized by this writing and not like not really feeling like I was that it was coming through me, that I wasn't making it happen necessarily. And I remember finishing the, the chapter and calling my partner, Rumi, who at the time was at a fellowship at Stanford. And I asked him, I said, you know, hey, I wrote something. It's, I, don't, I don't know what it is. Can I read it to you? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I'm taking a walk. So it's perfect. So I read it to him. And he, he just, you know, when I finished writing, when I finished reading, he said, oh, you know, I had to like, I was, he was so moved. And he said, I had to sit down. Like, that was really powerful. I've never heard you write in this voice. And so he encouraged me to keep writing. Um, and then others, in, in, you know, as I kept writing, I shared my writing with my fellows and, uh, you know, they kept encouraging me to write. And it was kind of an amazing experience having, you know, been a scholar by this time, having written my first book by this time to learn that I could write in all of these different ways. And I had no idea what I sounded like. And that also to understand that it was so necessary for me to be in a community of supportive community when I started writing, because, you know, often when you first hear your voice, you actually don't like like what you hear. I mean, even if you hear a recording of your voice, it's like a little bit jarring. And so you need people who are loving and kind and who care about you and who are, you know, who can really see you, see you uh, and hold space to witness you, to support you and then to encourage you to keep writing. And so that's how the book. Yes, and I, yes. by the way, writing it entirely by hand, by pen and paper. 
which is yes yes you just wrote on a notebook and then transferred it to the i mean i'm i'm thinking of the word the word document yeah but the like the whole book ended up being written like that actually wow yeah yeah how come i mean what is your relationship between pen and paper versus typing on the Question. that's such a good question I think it was um it was much more organic that's what I realized like when I was writing I would I felt much more connected like there was no mediation in a certain kind of way I mean the pen of course is a mediation but it was less than a keyboard and in a way I was committed to the sentence I had written like I wouldn't just delete it so I um I just found that when I was writing like that, I would actually write, there was much more mystery in the writing. Like I would sit down and say, oh, I want to write about this. And then I would end up writing about something else and I would be surprised. But part of it was because it had been written on the paper and I couldn't just like delete it and move on and do it again. You know, I would just be like, what, why am I writing about this? Let me just see where this goes. Um, and it just ended up being an amazing, so for me, an amazing process of writing. It helped me discover ways of writing that I didn't know I knew how to do. Yeah, could you read what you've written? Because, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because then you write just too fast. Sometimes I would struggle, but oh, and the other thing is it slow. I think it slowed me down also, mm. you know, which was also really, really nice actually, because it helped me. I could think better when I was writing. Excellent. Yeah. So when I was reading the book, it felt like felt like reading a novel because you were explaining what is going to come next. Yeah. And then it was the actual event and your interpretation of what has happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are saying that this is this is a book about, you know, Islam and Islamic uh, interpretation and conceptualizing this uh, this Islamic thoughts. I mean, from your point of view, but to me, read like a memoir. And you mm -hmm. just explained that, you know, it was um, you explore different ways of writing. So yeah. how how would you put this together? So I think it's memoir. You're saying it's not memoir. How do we uh, reconcile? On well, I think that officially it's categorized as memoir. So you're not wrong about that. <laughs> um, but I feel like, um, well, you know, I was very careful about telling the stories that I told because, you know, as people of color, as women of color, I think often we are mined, where our stories are extracted from us and we're asked to justify our presence in a space by through our stories. But then our stories are also used to invalidate our, uh, our positions. And so that's one part of it. So I wanted to be very careful about the stories that I told. I did not want to tell stories just for the sake of telling stories. Um, that's why I always make an argument in every single chapter of that book. And, you know, I'm thinking about gender. I'm thinking about Islam. I'm thinking about citizenship. I'm thinking about belonging. I'm thinking about what does a life look like in the wreckage of colonialism? What are some of the ways that it manifests itself? Um, and the other, the other part, like intellectually, what was driving me is that I really do believe that we have to think about the subjectivity of scholarship and that scholars should be connected to the work that they do, um, that they don't write in vacuums and they don't write you know, only cerebrally without any emotions. And I think that when we pretend to do that and when we, when we allow other people that space, we're all participating in a lie. And that lie is often used to justify a lot of monstrosities. And so intellectually, that's the position that I was coming from. And so I, I think I was trying to see if I could do the thing I want others to do, which is write, make arguments that are grounded in experience. And so I think that's what I try to do in the book. Uh, grounded in experience, but what has been your family's reaction? They have been amazing. Um, you know, it's of course everything is always complicated, and and when two people have are, are have one experience, they often experience that same event in different ways. 
Um, and I think in the book, I made space to always account for that and not ever be the omniscient narrator and assuming, I never assumed that I knew everything, that this was actually my, like one version of what I experienced. And, you know, I keep talking in the book about memory and how tricky it is and how it's a, how slippery it is, how it's always a creative act. There is like this quote actually from John Edgar Wideman where he says something like, I th he says something like, um, he's, a, he's a beautiful writer and he says, difficult, it's difficult to accept that a tangle of self-interested deceptions is as close to truth as anyone ever gets. Can you say and it again? So difficult to accept that a tangle of self-interested deceptions is as close to truth as anyone ever gets. And I think I really believe that to be the truth, actually. And so I, you know, I sort of like that, that's there in the spirit of the whole book. And I think because it's there, um, it allowed my siblings to uh, enjoy, like to be able to read the book and actually learn about me and be curious about my experience without feeling like I was speaking for them or telling them what happened or erasing the possibility of their experience. Yes, I think it was the strength of the book that there was uh, no victimhood, no blaming, and it was uh, experience of what you've gone through and what you've experienced. Here is, uh, bear with me for a second. So at least my experience, uh, we've been talking with many writers and many people who have been putting their body of work forward at least my experience of uh, our writers is that sometimes often and i work with lots of publishing houses and so forth so i feel sometimes that editors mm -hmm. and publishing houses push writers just too hard mm -hmm. to to tell story to tell a compelling story to just reveal too much of themselves mm -hmm. and uh, and have you ever did you experience Experience this kind of things because first of all I truly believe that it was very courageous to write and to reveal uh, such experiences and uh, did, did you felt any push to to do so from your writer, uh, editors and publishing house that's a great question and I think um, I think the process that I went through was different uh, ensured that I did not have that experience so basically I wrote the book and then I edited it for years before I actually ever tried to sell it so before I tried to like find a publisher for it. So at the point that I was looking for a publisher, I had pretty close to a final version of the book. Um, and uh, so then so then I was able to like the publisher who acquired it one world, they acquired the book, like they knew what the book was going to look like. And they loved the book as it was, which is which was really wonderful. And I think that that's why I didn't have that experience of being pushed to reveal more than I wanted to. Um, and at and actually, like, right, I was, you know, editing all the way till the end, till like the book went to print. And I actually pulled out like four chapters <laughs> right near the end of the book, like right near, right before it went to print, because I just didn't think that those chapters were ready for, like, I wasn't ready for them to be in the world. And I didn't feel like they were ready to be in the world. Like, they were not making the argument I wanted them to make, or they weren't making the argument the way I wanted it to make the argument. So I just wasn't done with them. And, um, you know, I had this lovely conversation with my editor then actually, cause she was, she was, you know, she was laughing, but she was like, uh, I feel like normally uh, authors like are like fighting to keep their words in the book and you're just like taking things out and you're taking out things that I love. And she really didn't want me to take a few of the chapters out. But um, but you always win in any kind of conversation because you, you can, you can speak. 
Excellent, excellent. The last question before we go to the break and come back, what was your mom's reaction? You know, I think one of the sorrows of diaspora actually is that there is a linguistic barrier between, uh, there can be a linguistic barrier between parents and children. And so I feel like um, that is basically, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say more than to say just that, that that was basically the overarching that, that, like, that's one of the sorrows of that I'm exploring in the book. You, you make peace with your mom. And we know that you love your mom. And yes, he, yes. I mean, I ended up liking your mom. Yes. But nevertheless, it was a very political answer. Okay, stay tuned with me. Yes, this is our fourth season of Peace Mindedly. We are preparing our episodes for our new season. Coming up with Selma Dabbaq, author and editor of We Wrote in Symbols, Love and Lust by Arab Women Writers. We will talk about long tradition of erotic writings by Arab female writers. I'm not sure why it may sound a bit surprising <laughs> to attribute lust, erotica, and sex to Arab or Muslim women writers. Nevertheless, in We Wrote in Symbols, edited by Selma Dabbaq, we discussed the works of 75 of these female writers of Arab heritage who write about love and lust in such profound manner. Another peace-mindedly's peaceful bridge maker is Zahra Hankir. Zahra is a Lebanese-British journalist who published a book that caught my attention. Are Women on the Ground? Essays by Women Reporting from the Arab World. The book is particularly important to me because we get to read stories of Arab nations written by female Arab correspondents. In any major events or big international stories, I'm always anguished to see the kind of stories that non-native Western foreign correspondents leave behind. In my conversation with Zahra, we learn about whys and hows. Sonora Ja, professor of journalism and communication at Seattle University, will tell us how to raise a feminist son. Motherhood, Masculinity, and Making of My Family is Sonora's new book. For this hour, we talked with Aisha Chaudhry. Aisha is the Canada Research Chair in Religion, Law, and Social Justice. She is Associated Professor of Islamic Studies and Gender Studies at the University of British Columbia, not too far away from us in Seattle. As an American-Canadian, Aisha was elected as a member of the College of the Royal Society of Canada in 2019. She was a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies at Harvard University. The Color of God is her second book published by One World. To learn more about Aisha and our other peaceful bridge makers that we feature on Peace Mindedly podcast, please visit goldtune.com. As you know, it's a tradition in our podcast show that we ask our guests to close the program for us by sharing something meaningful about peace, about kindness and compassion. I'm going to turn to Aisha and see what she has to say about peace, kindness and compassion. 
Well, I think I thought when you asked me that question that I would just read a paragraph from one of the chapters in the book. The chapter is called Jet Skiing on the Mediterranean. And this last paragraph reads, to love others on their own terms, we must first love ourselves. I see now that I've always misunderstood the commandment to love one's neighbor as oneself. I thought it meant we were supposed to love for our neighbors what we loved for ourselves. But that's just another way of universalizing our desires and imposing them on others. There's nothing noble or loving about that. Instead of assuming that we love ourselves already and challenging us to love others in the same way, the commandment asks us to love ourselves fully, even, especially, the parts of ourselves we'd rather not look at, the parts we are ashamed of, so that we can love others fully too. Loving like this is hard. It takes practice. It is best cultivated in community. We cannot offer others love, kindness, compassion that we do not first feel for ourselves. After all, the one who does not have something cannot give it. Excellent. Aisha, what is your next project, your next book? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> those four chapters? <laughs> that you're going to... <laughs> but I feel like I'm in a, like, I'm just sort of in a receptive place right now. I'm reading, I'm thinking, I'm absorbing, and we'll see. <laughs> yeah, you usually give very political answer to the <laughs> questions. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, thank you so much. With Martin was managing everything on the other end. Uh, we thank you so much and wish you yes, the best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. And Khoda Hafiz. Bye.